2: Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday.
0: This is a Character and Smallman podcast on 101 ESPN.
1: Good morning and welcome to Carriker and Smallman on 101 ESPN. 7 o'clock is the time. Your time check brought to you by Clarkson Jewelers, an officially licensed Rolex jeweler. Michelle, good morning.
3: Good morning, Randy. How are you?
1: Everything's good. Hope the weekend was good.
3: It was as good as it could be. I mean, beautiful weather on Saturday. Got to have some uh, socially distanced Mother's Day activities yesterday. I'll never get used to having a family holiday event over Zoom, but hey. At least, at least we had something to do, right? Right.
1: I I don't think any of us will. It's just so bizarre to have, uh, you know, you got to be able to get out and barbecue for a lot of people, right?
3: Yeah, you have to make some sides, have some cocktails. I mean, the closer that we're getting to summer, I think the more difficult this will be as far as not being able to see your friends and family.
1: Father's Day will be a lot different, won't it? Absolutely.
3: Absolutely. But hey, at least golf courses are open.
1: That's a good thing. yeah. You know,
3: so we can make some sort of Father's Day thing happen.
1: (laughs) We have quite a show coming up for you. Kurt Bloom, the voice of the Birmingham Barons, longtime voice of the Birmingham Barons, will be with us coming up at the bottom of this hour. We're going to talk to the voice of the Blues. Chris Kerber later on. Danny Mack has his show and his weekly hit with us at 930. But let's get things started with Jack Flaherty. Derek Gould talked to the Cardinal right-hander. And Michelle, you can see in Jack Flaherty that he would love Last Dance and love the demeanor and the competitiveness of a guy like Michael Jordan.
3: Because he has that competitiveness. We know that Jack Flaherty is a Kobe Bryant guy. He lives and subscribes by the Mamba mentality. And I think it's amazing to talk to someone like Jack Flaherty or read... Derek Gould's piece and have a, an athlete like Jack Flaherty who encompasses so many of Michael Jordan's mm-hmm. qualities through Kobe Bryant, but wasn't alive and, and wasn't a sports fan, was just a kid. I mean, what was he, three years old during this period? So he never really witnessed Michael Jordan. He grew up in the Kobe era. So to see that, to see his idol, Kobe Bryant, say, so much of me is from him, has mm-hmm. to be kind of a cool thing for him to see the lineage of that competitive nature.
1: And the interview took place before last night last dance episodes we're going to talk about last dance here coming up in about 13 minutes but one of the things he said was as a competitor the way that people talk about him is the way that you want to be talked about from a public perspective yes but from a teammates perspective maybe not and we'll talk about Michael saying hey there's a price to pay
3: there is a price to pay but at the end of the day that price is because you're winning You know, there's there's a goal at the end and you have to sacrifice something for the goal. And the goal is being great and being a winner. And again, we're going to get into all of this. But when you're the person who is great, when you're Jack Flaherty, who is the great one, all the responsibility and pressure lies on your shoulders. So do you have to be a bad teammate to make sure everybody else understands that they have a part in making you great and making you deliver what everyone is expecting that you Mm -hmm. deliver? Yeah, I mean, I I understand that Michael and Kobe and think about Albert, think about Tony Larusa, a lot of people that we have, think about Yadier Molina, think about Chris Carpenter chastising some of his
1: yeah Brendan Ryan Brendan Ryan <laughs>
3: chastising his teammates because they weren't ready to play. But at the end of the day, if that game was lost, it was on Chris Carpenter's shoulders, not mm-hmm. Brendan Ryan's shoulders. So while yeah, it might not be great to be a teammate of someone who is great, who is the goat, who encompasses greatness like that, usually there's a payoff at the end, and that comes with a, with a championship.
1: And I always thought that Michael did a better job of the early Kobe, because Kobe had Shaq in that first Pete, and did a better job, certainly than LeBron, of willing his teammates to victory. And maybe willing isn't the best word. Maybe it's forcing his teammates, demanding his teammates uh, win with him. But that's a unique personality trait that not everybody can pull off because you do, like I think Bill Weddington said last night, you have to be willing to do everything and then ask your teammates to do everything that you would do, but not more than you would do.
3: You and I both read Phil Jackson's book, Mm -hmm. and I believe it was in his book or just a quote that he had when he was talking about Kobe Bryant, and he had to explain to him everybody is not at your level. They're not at your level physically, they're not at your level mentally. So what you're demanding of them, you are capable of doing, and they're not capable of doing this. And I think that's really hard for people who are that great to understand all the time is, yeah, you may ask them to do something and say, well, I'm doing it too. I would never ask you to do something that I wouldn't do. But they might not be capable of the levels of things that you're capable of. And I think that that's difficult oftentimes. If if you're a guy like Michael Jordan who can be not only the best all the time, but the best among the best. Mm-hmm. No competitor was was too tough. No stage was too big. You could No deficit was too large to overcome. You could turn it on and, like you said, will or force your team to win. That is such a rare quality. But when you're existing in it, it's hard to see that not everybody else can do that.
1: What I love about Flaherty and what you're talking about is that he has that incredible skill set, and that incredible will to win, and the the combination of the skill set and the competitiveness is really hard to find. Orlando Pace has that, because normally when you have that incredible skill set, it comes so easy for you, and especially as a youngster, you win because you're just better than everybody mm-hmm. else. So to have the skill set, and maybe getting cut from the sophomore to the the varsity team as a sophomore is what brought this about for Michael, but. There are so few athletes that have that ability, and it appears that Flaherty has that ability to combine an amazing set of skills with that competitiveness. You mentioned the word, the, the name Chris Carpenter. We've all talked about his relationship with Bob Gibson. Mm-hmm. We're kind of kindred spirits in that regard.
3: And I think Gibson and Carpenter recognize that in yeah. Jack Flaherty. They didn't just want to mentor him because of the skill set. It's because of that competitive fire that he has within him. But Michael Jordan used the, these slights, whether real or perceived, to fuel that fire. I would love to know what it is in Jack Flaherty that fuels that fire, because I think every Every great athlete is different.
1: And Derek Gould asked him if that sort of competitiveness can be learned or if it's just inherent. And uh, Derek writes, Flaherty paused for nine seconds before starting an answer. I think, he said, he paused five more seconds. I think it's a difficult thing. I don't know if I can say it can be learned or... if I can say it comes from something within. I think it's the competing at all times part. Everybody can compete. Everybody can go out there and compete when they want. I think people are able to control the on-off switch of competing as much as they think they can. They might think they're competing, but that switch might not be turned all the way on. It's better to have it on all the way than to try to flip it on and off. Yeah, that can be learned. Turn Turn it on all the time and turn it up. So it's the classic thing. If you're playing... Adam Wainwright. If Adam Wainwright's playing Monopoly against his kids, he's trying to beat them Mm -hmm. and never, never, never lose.
3: Yeah, can you can you imagine being someone just in your casual circle that's mm-hmm. like, yeah, let's let's play a card game for mm-hmm. fun, and then you're playing against someone who is hyper competitive, and that no matter what the situation or the stakes, will not let you lose. And while I agree with Flaherty, I think people can turn it on and off. I think that's the difference is that it's always on. It's just what mm-hmm. level. Is it on? Is it on a level two? Is it on a level five? Do you need to bring it up to a level ten? And you know, based on the situation. But I think, as we saw with Michael Jordan, as this continues, whether it's him watching the videos of what other people are saying about him, or if he's flipping coins with his security team, whatever the task at hand, he craved that competition at all times.
1: Let me tell you something. Every time I read a story like this, or I watch Jack Flaherty's show on social media, every time I hear a quote from the guy or read a quote from the guy. I'm more excited about the future and watching him.
3: Absolutely. And to think that this is something that he has and that he's aware that he has and that he's proud to have Mm. and that fire that he has and to think about his age and just what the future is for him and how he is, like, he's a a tone setter for this team. Mm -hmm. You know, whether it's young pitchers, whether it's other members of the team, whether it's the way the coaching staff approaches the game, you know that when Jack Flaherty has the ball and it's his game, that you better come with a certain set of standards. And I think as he grows and as he ages and as he has more of a leadership role with this team, that's only going to get bigger as well.
1: And you know what's interesting, Michelle, is a guy like Reyes – the number one guy until Reyes got hurt. He was ahead of Flaherty. Mm -hmm. But Flaherty has this unquantifiable trait that I know that Alex Reyes has been hurt, but I don't think Alex Reyes has that. He just, he doesn't have that ability to bring everybody around him. He has the incredible skill set that we're talking about. I don't know if he has that ability to bring everybody around him up to another level. We just we've heard him speak, we've spoken to him and he just doesn't seem to be that sort of a guy.
3: He seems to be more reserved Mm -hmm. and it's not that Flaherty is flamboyant by any means but when you talk about Michael Jordan and the price of greatness he's not afraid to go out there and be angry and show it. He's not afraid to go out there and be demanding and show And that might be a price that a lot of other athletes who, unless they're established, aren't willing to pay.
1: Let's touch on some of the other highlights over the weekend. NCAA president Mark Emmert said he doesn't think that sports can come back until all students are back on campus. Wait till he talks to his athletic directors about that, though. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I'm not so sure that he's as in charge as he believes he is.
3: I think that's something that you have to say right now. But yeah, I think that the conversations behind closed doors might be a little different than what he's putting out publicly.
1: And he did say that uh, you've got Zoom meetings and he said, you don't ever want to put student athletes at greater risk than the rest of the student body. He said, that doesn't mean the school has to be up and running in the full normal model, but you've got to treat the health and well-being of the athletes at least as much as the regular students. So if a school doesn't reopen, they're not going to be playing sports. It's really that simple. And I, schools, I get the sense they they want to reopen and make their money.
3: Yeah, I th- do. You really think it's that simple? Because I think. You- While I I understand that they're student athletes and the student should be as 50 percent as the athlete is 50 percent, we all know that that is not the case, that the athlete is about 80 percent and the the student might be 20 percent, depending on the player and the situation. And I think when you have players and scholarships involved and you have players and their future involved and you have coaches who are making millions and millions of dollars and their livelihood and their legacies are involved, you have athletic directors whose jobs are on the line and you have a country clamoring for sports, I think as the days creep forward and as things start to get lessened, I wouldn't be surprised if we start to see kind of a groundswell for college sports to at least have something on the calendar.
1: Ultimately, Mark Emmert works for the presidents and the presidents are going to go and say, wait, that billion dollars from college football isn't going to be there because college football isn't there. Should we rethink this? And I think the president's probably will have some sway over Mark Emmerich.
3: I agree. And I, I understand what he's saying, that you don't want to put a student athlete at greater risk than a normal student. But what you ask of a student athlete on a day to day basis during normal times is not what you ask of a normal student. Great point. So you are, you yeah. already put them at, I don't want to say risk, but you already put them in a certain category where the the rules of a normal student just going to class every day do not apply to that of a student athlete.
1: That's Michelle. I'm Randy, and last night was Michelle's favorite couple of episodes of Last Dance, the Last Dance recap with our Last Dance Insider, Michelle. Next on 101 ESPN.
0: We're right back to the Carricker and Smallman podcast on 101 ESPN.
1: Michelle Smallman is our Last Dance Insider here on 101 ESPN, and last night you had episodes numbers seven and eight. Only one Sunday night left. What'd you think?
3: Every week, I think these are my two favorite episodes. There's no way that this can get any better. And then you settle in on Sunday night at 8 p.m., and they get better. And better and better. These two were unbelievable from the stuff about his dad to him sobbing. Just that visceral sob that we saw from him after he won that title after his father's death. And, you know, we'd all seen the photos, but to hear him cry like that. I mean, what a way to close out those two episodes that we saw last night. It was unbelievable. Very powerful.
1: And we know that... He always played with a chip on his shoulder. The lengths that he went to to develop those chips I found remarkable. I knew that he was a self-motivator, but some of the stupid stuff that he actually went to the lengths to do to motivate himself was shocking to me.
3: You mean like making up entire stories yes. in his head that he holds on to for months and years to fire, the, put fuel on the fire? The Le- Le Bradford
1: Smith story, <laughs> and David Aldridge did a great job of telling it, is incomprehensible to me that he would actually tell his teammates, yeah, he said have a good game, uh, game, Mike, when LeBradford Smith had the the great game, and then he uses that as motivation to say, I'm going to do that in the first half the next night, and then he does.
3: I love that they approach him about it, and he smiled and said, yeah, it's not true. It's not true. (laughs) I'm
1: I'm glad he is. What else struck you?
3: So my first takeaway or observation from episode seven and eight of The Last Dance is actually a question to you, because... Mm -hmm. You know, I've been a sports fan my entire life. I've been in the media for a number of years now. So I've gotten to see a lot of big sports stories develop. But I was obviously a kid and didn't really understand the magnitude of this. Can you explain to me the shock and just the the how it registered on the Richter ca- scale of sports stories when Michael Jordan announced that he was retiring and going to baseball? Because I don't know if I've ever covered a story or will ever cover a story that has that shock factor like that. I was trying to think last night. I think the closest thing for me might be Andrew Luck, but Andrew Luck is not Michael Jordan.
1: No. All you have to do is realize that. At that time, network news was a big thing, and all of the network news anchors were at that press conference in Chicago. He was, obviously, we're doing this documentary on him, so he transcended basketball, transcended sports. He was globally the, the best-known face in the world. He, he was on the Dream Team. Everybody knew him all over the world. And even though his dad had been murdered Nobody had a clue that night during that baseball game, that playoff baseball game, that he was going to retire. And all of a sudden, the baseball game takes a back seat. And that's the story uh, right after the game on SportsCenter that he's going to retire. And... It was Richter scale. It was huge. It was an earthquake. It was Richter scale stuff. It was unbelievable.
3: And to watch people then after they cover the fact that he announced he was retiring, the fact that it it resonated to me that it was so shocking at the time that people had to wonder if he was suspended because there was no way that this would happen. And Brian McIntyre, who was NBA communications advisor at the time, talks about that theory.
1: What's your opinion of the theory that Commissioner Stern suspended Michael for 18
2: months. How can I phrase, how can I phrase this delicately? Total. B- can you use that? Total. B- there was so much
1: speculative reporting. Nobody had concrete facts. Nobody had anything.
3: But that's to me very indicative of how shocking it was that people were were grasping at straws to make sense of why Michael Jordan would retire.
1: And these were columnists. This wasn't just Twitter posts. There was no such thing as Twitter. This was ostensibly responsible people that were trying to figure out why in God's name would Michael Jordan not be playing basketball. And I think he laid it out well last night. And especially now that we know how much he put into it, I can see how somebody would be completely fried, and especially after his dad got killed. I, I can totally see how, like he said you can just have had enough and not have any more in you to do that
3: to give 130 150 percent at all times and have that pressure lying on your shoulders and then have a trauma happen in your life Mm -hmm. and then you're expected to mentally and physically be at that level all the time i i don't know how any human being could do it i really don't
1: i was amazed because we don't see The Michael Jordan away from the court. And we mentioned the the Father's Day and being able to hear him. But the Michael Jordan in this documentary, you don't see him get that emotional. But I thought it was interesting that uh, in talking about how he held his teammates accountable, that we did see emotion that we don't ordinarily see from him. Once you join the team, you live at a certain standard that I played the game. And I wasn't going to take anything less. Now, that means I had to go in there and get in your ass a little bit, and I did that. You asked all my teammates? The One thing about Michael Jordan was he never asked me to do something that he didn't do. When people see this, yeah, they're going to say, well, he wasn't really a nice guy. He may have been a tyrant. Oh, well, that's you. Because you never wanted anything. I wanted to win, but I wanted them to win and be a part of that as well. Like, I don't have to do this. I'm only doing it because it is who I am. That's how I played the game. That was my mentality. If you don't want to play that way, don't play that way. Break. And uh, that ended the scene. I kind of wish there were more athletes that had that ability to hold their players accountable and would.
3: But even in the end, when you can hear that emotion in his voice, you know that it's probably something that weighed on him, that Mm -hmm. he had to do this all the time. But it also seems like it was something he couldn't control, that his quest to win and to make sure that everybody else around him was going to help him in that quest probably weighed on him a lot, but it was something that he had to do. But now that he's not playing anymore, and especially being put in this position where he's being interviewed and having to reflect on that, again, that's probably something that weighed heavy on him. And
1: he's the producer here, so he knows that a bunch of his former teammates have called him an a-hole.
3: Yes, so, of course.
1: So he's responding in that re- in that vein also.
3: Absolutely. Another thing, Randy, that I took away was about Michael Jordan's father and his death. And we talk about the pressure that Jordan felt all the time to win and that just— roiling intensity within him all the time. And I spoke last week to you about how one of my main takeaways of this entire docu-series is how greatness has to be incredibly isolating because the pressure and the responsibility to win lies on your shoulders. If the Bulls get bounced early in the in the first round of the playoffs and it's Dennis Rodman's fault, people are going to look at Michael Jordan. It's going to affect your legacy. They're going to say, well, you've willed your team to win X amount of times. You couldn't do it then. It's always going to fall on your shoulders. And no one else understands what that pressure and that responsibility is like. Sure, you can be a cast member on the team, but you don't know what it's like to be in the spotlight 24-7 for when, you know, Dennis Rodman can go up to Vegas for a few days and do his thing. Michael Jordan takes one step out of his hotel room. He's mobbed and everybody wants something from him. And so to think that all this is happening before he's even 30 years old, he's still a kid in a lot of respects, but with very Real and, and adult responsibilities, very mature responsibilities, and a lot of people's livelihoods depending on him, to think that his only real outlet and the only person that he felt complete and utter transparency and trust in, in his father, is then removed from the equation. Not only is it your dad that is taken from you in a shocking and violent manner, but to then have people outside of that bubble pointing the finger at you and saying, you mu- your gambling problem was a reason for this, was a reason for your father's death, that's something that I don't know how the people that did that to him, how they could sit there and put that in print, can really s- sleep at night because that would eat at me if I were to ever point the finger at somebody it's like that. It's
1: unbelievable, really, that they essentially were accusing him of getting his own father killed, his best friend, and saying that it was part of gambling this guy by that time was closing in on a billion dollars you think michael wasn't paying his gambling debts come on
3: (laughs) yeah i think he was okay i mean he he talked in previous episodes they were saying michael jordan gambling ten thousand dollars was like you gambling ten dollars it's all relative based on what's in the bank right
1: no doubt. And,
3: oh. and you don't think, too, by the way, if he ha- was $100,000 in debt or a million dollars in debt, that he couldn't just cl- have his agent call hey, McDonald's and say, get me another commercial? He could
1: call up David Stern and say, <laughs> you know, Commissioner, I-, I got a gambling debt here. Can the league pay it for me? And Stern would have.
3: Of course. <laughs> but to, th- to think that not only he's having to deal with this tornado of emotions with his dad, but then to have other people point the finger at him was, it was shocking to me. And Bob Costas talked about how there was no evidence that in any way led to believe that Michael Jordan had any sort of responsibility in his father's death.
1: There isn't a thimble's worth of evidence to connect that horrible incident to Michael Jordan's gambling or any other aspect of
2: Michael Jordan's behavior. Police said it was no more than brutality and greed. That James Jordan quote could have been any one of us. What
1: is
3: still unclear and will be for some time is what effect this tragedy will have on Michael Jordan and his future with the Chicago Bulls.
1: Basketball? I haven't even thought about basketball. I didn't even think about basketball before all this happened. So uh, right now, you know, it's, everything's tender for my schedule from this point on. Michelle, I had forgotten that it was three weeks before they found the body that uh, he disappeared. I. I thought that they had found him on the side of the road. I didn't recall him missing for that long.
3: Yeah. And can you imagine if if you're Michael, you're the Jordan family. Here you are, the biggest superstar in the world with all the resources in the world. And you're having to to answer these questions and live with this for three weeks, not only with the fear and the anxiety of not knowing what happened to your dad, but knowing that there's that you can will anything to happen and you can't will anything this to happen or you know to get answers that had to be so heartbreaking
1: we'll have more on last dance as we continue with carriker and smallman on 101 espn coming up the man who broadcasts michael's baseball games at double a kurt bloom still the voice of the birmingham barons he'll join us next on 101 espn we're right
0: back to the carriker and smallman podcast on 101 espn
1: you can hear a lot of the uh, minor league activity of Michael Jordan at Kurt Bloom's website. The longtime voice of the Birmingham Barons is with us now on the Brown and Crouppen celebrity line on one oh one ESPN. Just go to Kurt Bloom.com and you can hear that Michael's home run at the minor league level and a lot of other great Michael Jordan material with Michelle Smallman. I'm Randy Carricker. Kurt Bloom. It's a pleasure to have you with us here in St. Louis. How are you doing this morning?
2: Well, check is in the mail, my friend. Uh, that's, Yeah, it was awesome. Um, Yeah, doing great. Fantastic. And when I first, you know, got this set up, remember this, and I'm a New York native, but there is no better baseball city in the world than the one I'm on in in right now with you guys in St. Louis. It is is number one, top of the charts, and uh, I I don't know how that city is surviving without the cards and the blues at the same time, but Uh, I'm doing well. I hope your city and and, uh, your families are doing great as
3: well. Kurt, it's been rough here without sports, let me tell you. (laughs) But the the last dance certainly has helped ease the pain slightly, at least on Sunday nights. But uh, first question for you, minor league baseball has a certain pace to it. You know, there's a certain uh, way that the crowd is. There's a certain way that the pace of the game is. It's very different than major league baseball. And you're there in Birmingham, the Birmingham Barons. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, here comes the biggest global superstar and Michael Jordan as a member of the team. Can you just talk about how the energy at the ballpark changed when Michael Jordan came to town?
2: Yeah, there were a few words, Michelle, that were banned after because we used them so often. <laughs> that was buzz. You know, you can't use the, oh, quite a buzz, and you couldn't use the word circus, you know. And Tito Francona set the pace. Um, and he's the one that said, you know, enough of these words. But like no other season, as you can imagine, by 2 o'clock, it was, it was on. And you're five hours away from a game. But by 2 o'clock, you're wondering, is there going to be an actor? We talk about celebrity, um, singer. Uh, you know, who is, who's going to be there tonight? Um, the game became secondary. You know, I don't, I don't think we, we knew scores. I don't think we knew uh, standings or anything along those lines. Now, that was us. Michael, of course, cared about all of that. Uh, but it was really at two o'clock every day a buzz that, that we knew would not be repeated. And you know, here I am, twenty six years later, uh, two o'clock now. I'm still prepping, uh, beginning my prep for a game. Uh, let alone, you know, wondering if if Michael's going to do something. If he's going to, uh, you know, may have that spectacular moment.
1: We saw last night the media sitting in the section and Michael on a stool above the dugout. Was it like that every day?
2: For the first three months, Randy, it was uh, April, May, June. um, And that would be about in in the minor leagues. Again, we have a split season Uh, like that every day, every city, every place we went to. I think uh, things started slowing down sometime July or August, but uh, it was a crush. And and how we handled it, what we did uh, once per series, Michael had a press conference. And, uh, you know, he still had a lot of NBA contacts, so they obviously had their access. But when we went to the Memphises of the world, Orlando, uh, Zebulon, North Carolina, uh, all those places, just one shot, one day in, here it is, get it all out after BP, um, and that was it. There were really no one-on-ones, and and that didn't stop, like I said, until probably mid-second half, July-ish.
3: Kurt, how would you have described Michael Jordan as a baseball player?
2: Promising. I think that's the first word that comes to my mind is, Michelle, it's easy in this day and age to look at batting average um, and say, oh, he only hit 202. But, you know, his athleticism is, is obvious. His speed is obvious. And he, as an outfielder, I thought he was more than adequate. So, I, I you know, we were all robbed that he stopped, and he stopped only because baseball was on strike uh, and and had a lockout in 95. Uh, I think what would have happened, he would have went to Nashville the following year and then up to Chicago as a fourth or fifth outfielder. I know it was easy to to use that phrase, oh, it's a joke and it's terrible and this, that, but it wasn't, and nor was he. He he worked tremendously hard to become somebody and something, and it was a lot of fun, and I, I really thought he had a chance. Kurt Bloom, the
1: voice of the Birmingham Barons, with us on 101 ESPN. What was the most impressive ascent that he had? You mentioned that he hit 202, Kurt. And last night, Tito Francona mentioned on the show that he drove in the 51. He stole 30 bases. What was the most impressive thing that he got better at, as far as you're concerned?
2: Well, the whole at-bat and the whole approach um, was really fun to watch. It, it we We saw what it was like in April. It was just really, here's a fastball, hit it then breaking balls about six weeks into the season, and then the adjustment, okay, and then the mental and physical adjustment to finish strong. The the one number to me, if I can steal another number that's still extraordinary, is the three home runs. And you can ask Kerber because Kerber's broadcast with me from Hoover Met. And I'll tell you what, that is one of the hardest ballparks that I've ever been in to hit home runs. It's really huge. And the ball doesn't carry and for him to hit three home runs, guys, he didn't – that was not a fluke. This was not wiffle ball. I mean, guys were throwing 91-mile-an-hour fastballs at him and curveballs and sliders. And, you know, I've been with guys who played baseball their entire year and haven't had a three-homer season, but he did. I just, I just think that we underestimate the magnitude of that.
3: Kurt, one of the things that was talked about last night in the doc as far uh, in reference to Michael's baseball career was the fact that his work ethic was off the charts, how he was in the cage three times a day, including practice and working out at different times. I can't imagine him having that schedule and then having all of the media there and then having all of the different things that he needs to do, the, the other team workouts he needs to get in. So they talk about Michael Jordan's legendary competitiveness, his work ethic. What was that like for you to witness that up close?
2: Uh, a privilege. And again, a treat, you know, I knew every day Michelle that that was something special and and I knew it wouldn't last forever. Um, there's also a part of me that I have been working personally hard to get to that level now, not, not Michael Jordan level, but to get to that big league level. So I also had to make sure that I, I kept it in perspective, but that's all true. Um, especially on the road, it was a van, a bus, a taxi, or the, the opposing general manager provided him and our hitting instructor, Mike Barnett, with transportation to get there. And I tell you, it's funny because there's, a, there's been a time before and after where I did what the team did. You know, I, I went to weights. Uh, I, I was shagging fly balls. And I did that for a couple of years and then I realized as I got older, I said, my God, I am worn out and it's not even it's not even the first pitch yet. So <laughs> you know his, his legendary work ethic and his athleticism it all helped him. I think the guy can go through 23 and a half hours a day without you know without needing a sleep or, or, or a nap or anything like that.
1: You mentioned the bus and we've heard the story about how he provided better transportation for the team, right?
2: Well, remember this, and it's going to have its own story and its own 30 for 30. He never bought the bus, and I hate to pop the bubble for (laughs) anybody who thought he did. Um, His name helped arrange a lease, and all we did is get a newer bus. And so anything new is a toy. And back in 1994 in the Southern League, you had, I guess we now call them cheese wagons, and uh, they, they were just horrible. Uh, the, the smell, the sound, and, and you didn't know if you would make it from city to city, and I can't tell you how many times I pulled over on a highway at three o'clock in the morning, you know, just thinking, is this really happening? Um, but it was new, and like Tito said, it was painted like the Partridge family, <laughs> but it, it had a legend. It had its own, um, it, it it's had its own life to it. You know, it's, it's really neat. I'm, I'm waiting For a movie or a documentary or even a Twitter account, um, thejordancruiser.com, you know, something along those lines.
3: (laughs) Can't wait for that. Kurt, was it difficult for people within the organization or on the team to not treat him like a superstar, at least early on? I know once he was there for a while, he kind of ingrained himself into the group there. But I can't imagine what it's like for people that are there who are just used to their daily lives. And then all of a sudden, here comes Michael Jordan and you want to treat him like he's just a member of the team but that had to be difficult to do at times
2: well we had two incredible leaders and anything successful starts from the top whether it's 101.1 in in espn in st louis or it's the blues cardinals whoever it is but it starts at the top in our case we had two incredible leaders our president general manager bill hartikoff who set the pace for front office guys and me part of the front office as a broadcaster and with Tito Francona running the clubhouse and Tito addressed everybody in spring training and said, look, you know, we're we're going to treat Michael Jordan as if he was Kevin Coglin, Scott Tedder, Chris Snowpack or anybody else. And so when you have great leadership like that, it set the pace. it set the tone. I personally sat down with Bill. I sat down with Tito. They gave me instructions on how to handle it. And, you know, it, it leads me in, and I'll, I'll, shorten this version of it, but it, it it's why I didn't interview him myself until late in August, because I, I thought it was my job to facilitate and let everybody else. And I say this again, Michelle and Randy, I've been in baseball. This will be my 33rd year, and I still believe there'll be some baseball somewhere. I have not come across a combination of a front office and a field manager that could have pulled it off like we did. And I know that's a bold statement. I stick by it. And more importantly, I'm very proud of that.
1: Kurt Bloom, voice of the Birmingham Barons, great insight. We really appreciate you taking some time with us today. And hopefully we do have baseball and you get a chance to call some this year.
2: I hope so. And thank you again for what you guys are doing. We call it grinding in the business. Um, My hats are off to the talk shows of America that are trying to come up with content in this time. I hope you all stay uh, safe and healthy and uh the the loss of john davidson to your city is been has been the uh, gain uh to the new york rangers organization in <laughs> my home in my hometown so let's go blues and go cards and, and go barons at the same time thanks for having me and have a wonderful day
1: you too kurt thank you very much that's kurt bloom the veteran voice of the birmingham barons with us on 101 espn
3: i think what kurt said really resonated with me imagine having tito francona in charge i mean a guy who is in a an unbelievably established leader. I mean, at the time he was building up towards that. But it's funny to think about the pieces of people's stories that are important. I'm sure having to deal with Michael Jordan on that level helped Tito become the manager that he is at the major league level.
1: There is no doubt about that. And he played at the major league level and his dad was a major leaguer. So he had an idea. But how do you prepare for the world's Biggest celebrity coming in to a minor league situation and playing for you. And he handled it really well.
3: I don't think you can prepare for it. I think you just have to, you know, deal with it as it comes. But in situations moving forward when Tito's dealing with Massive superstars at different, you know, levels of the game in different situations. I'm sure it pales in comparison to having to figure out how to balance Michael Jordan the, on the Birmingham Barons.
1: That's Michelle. I'm Randy. Freeze pops is with us, and he will have a wake up or snooze next on 101 ESPN.
0: We're right back to the Character and Smallman podcast on 101 ESPN.
1: <laughs> All right, it's time for wake up or snooze here on 101 ESPN freeze pops is with us what do you got hey guys mornings how, how you doing good weekend for you guys everything was fantastic mother's day was good did a lot of bar i did a lot of cooking yesterday what's there the best you thing
3: you cooked randy
1: um i'm gonna go with my um uh, my barbecued chicken last night but the red velvet waffles for brunch were pretty good
3: Ooh, red wow. velvet waffles yeah
1: so I did a pretty good job with those. That's
3: impressive. That sounds amazing. <laughs> wow!
1: <laughs> with a, a, a cream cheese frosting. I mean, you went white chocolate chips.
3: <laughs> you went from chick barbecue chicken standard to red velvet waffles. That yeah, took well, me off guard. That wow! Was earlier, yeah. Now was that a personal request or is that something you just wanted nope, to try? That
1: was a personal request. Wow! So no. this is
3: something you've done before that's worked?
1: Oh no, this was new.
3: Oh, okay. So,
1: and I pulled it off. Good they for were you. pretty good. Good
0: stuff from Randy. All right, guys. Last week on the Joe Rogan podcast, Elon Musk said that within five to ten years, humans will have the ability to communicate non-verbally. He sees a system of symbiosis between humans and artificial intelligence that would allow the exchange of ideas between people without using words. If Elon Musk is correct, non-verbal communication will be really bad for society.
1: Wake up or snooze. I'm going to wake up on that one. Yeah. And offensive linemen, by the way, have been doing that for years, <laughs> right? They True. they know when the guy next to them, what he's going to do. But we already don't talk enough. We already text and uh, tweet and we don't talk enough. Nonverbal communication is bad now. And if we have nonverbal communication, it's going to be really bad.
3: When I first read this, I was picturing everyone doing signs like a baseball mm. manager, and I thought, that's got to be confusing. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I'm with you. I think that so many people, like the art of a face-to-face conversation is almost like a forgotten art at this point, because everybody yeah. emails, everybody texts, and you can't dictate tone in text. There's no sarca- sarcasm font. There's there's no wink-wink, nudge-nudge mm. font. When you're texting or emailing someone, if you're joking around with them, you have to make it very clear with an LOL, haha. Ha, or yep. they ha- you have to know that they know that you're joking. And I just think that the nuance of verbal communication and face-to-face conversation is something that we as, we as a, uh, a society and we as human beings should not lose sight of.
1: I would not be offended. And I know a lot of people would, but if it was me and my family of four went to a restaurant and they said no phones allowed, I wouldn't be offended at all.
3: I think that more families and more restaurants need to take the St. Petersburg approach yep. where you just put the phone in a basket right. and you actually enjoy your time with other people and you savor the present.
1: I'm with you.
0: It's being reported that Joe Tessitore and Booger McFarlane will no longer be in the Monday Night Football booth for ESPN. Speculation has begun for who will replace them. It's finally time for Kurt Warner to get a chance in the Monday Night Football booth on television. Wake up or snooze.
1: I'll wake up with this caveat. Kurt doesn't want to do that. Kurt loves the idea of flying into the city on Monday, not wearing a tie, and just not having to do a football broadcast where for Monday night football you have to be there on Saturday. He doesn't want to spend that much time away from his family. So while the timing would be good, and maybe he would want the money, I don't know, I don't think that based on my knowledge of Kurt that last I talked to him that he really didn't want to, to do that. But I think he'd be really good.
3: Yeah, I'm going to wake up for selfish reasons because I want him in the booth. I think he's excellent at what he does. I think he's he's got the experience and the authority to be in, the, in that booth. And didn't he audition and want the gig before, prior? He has, yeah. So, I mean, I think that if ESPN recognizes his talent and it's something that he did want in the past, that they should just go for it.
1: I do think that... Uh, ESPN would do well to put Pat McAfee in there as their analyst. Uh, Steve Levy and Pat McAfee would be fine for me.
3: Yeah, when we obviously saw Pat McAfee during the XFL coverage Mm -hmm. and he brought an entirely different look. I think you're right. They, Whoever they have in play-by-play in color is one thing, but I do think that they need to bring some sort of a not necessarily younger, but more of a spontaneous element Mm -hmm. to the sidelines or to some part of the broadcast, because that is something that I think as a lot of sports fans consumed with the XFL, they wish would translate to the broadcast and the NFL.
1: For Monday Night Football, historically, it's more than just the football from the glory days of Gifford, Meredith and Howard Cosell. Howard Cosell wasn't an expert, but you never knew what they were going to say. They need somebody where it's not just football analysis, where you never know what what that person's going to say.
0: A shoeless Joe Jackson baseball card from 1910 sold in an auction last week for $492,000 spending an absurd amount of money on a piece of sports memorabilia is never a good idea wake up or snooze i'm going to
3: snooze on that if you if you've got half a million dollars to throw away on a baseball card you go ahead and do it and obviously it's it's worth something so it might be an investment for you and you can sell it down the line um but i also think that if you are a sports you're if you have money like that you're going to be a collector of something right mm-hmm. whether it's art or cars or whatever and why not sports memorabilia? If it's something that is a piece of history and brings you joy and you've got the capital to do it, so be it.
1: Being the the father of a field line golden retriever who's a year old, <laughs> I'm going to have to wake up on this. I, I think anytime you have anything valuable in your house with my dog, you are running the risk of that item being destroyed and ripped apart.
3: Well, Randy, I don't think that you would leave the baseball card on the floor. I doesn't, think maybe it would be in a case, a protective case, maybe mounted on the wall.
1: Hey, With with this dog, it doesn't matter.
3: Wow, really? Oh, she's
1: crazy. She gets up on the table, the kitchen table. She's crazy. All
3: fours on the table? Oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah.
1: and <laughs> What I'm, a vertical. And, and she's kind of trained. So that's really bad. She's just really active. So she needs to be trained better, clearly. But, uh, yeah, I, I, number, and the other thing is... I don't think that this is going to be a high quality photo of shoeless Joe. <laughs> so, um, I, you know, I don't want somebody to come in my house and say, "Hey, what's that?" and this baseball card. Oh yeah, really? Is that rare? Yeah, I paid four hundred ninety-two thousand dollars for it. <laughs> I'm not going to show that off to people. I got better things to spend my four hundred ninety-two grand on.
3: But if I gave you four hundred ninety-two grand, Randy, and I said you can buy only one piece of sports memorabilia, what would? You, is there something that you oh, would want? Man.
1: Hmm. I'd have to think about it. Wonder who has the uh the the puck from the end of last year's Stanley Cup championship for the Blues. Oh,
3: that's a pretty good one. Yeah. I wonder if with four hundred ninety two thousand dollars you could just buy the cup. Maybe. <laughs> <what> <laughs>
0: After a few days of staring at the NFL schedule for 2020, Patriots fans have realized that Tom Brady's games for the Bucks and Pats games don't have time conflicts until week 15, so Pats fans will be able to watch both their Patriots and Tom Brady in peace. Even if an all-time great St. Louis athlete left to play for another team, you are always going to watch your home team if they were playing a game at the same time. Wake up or
1: snooze? 100% wake up. When Albert left, if he was playing at the same time, I was watching the Cardinals.
3: Yeah, 100% wake up for me, too. And, yes, Tom Brady leaving the Patriots is very similar to the way that Albert left the Cardinals. And that's one thing that I don't understand about Patriots fans is that they would even consider watching Brady over the Patriots. Because, to me, it's it's the— It's the laundry on the front, not the name on the back. I love the Cardinals. Yes, I can love individual athletes, but I'm I'm choosing the Cardinals over any other individual athlete out there.
1: I will say this. In 2004, I probably, for a noon game, spent at least half of the time watching Warner with the Giants. Wow. I was probably flipping back and forth. Uh, So I was probably 50-50 between Kurt and the Rams in 2004.
3: I'm trying to think. I mean, okay, let's Let's say hypothetically – Yachty left the Cardinals Mm. I would certainly want to watch Yachty on another team just it would hurt it would be you know an emotional tornado if you will I wouldn't want to see him wearing another jersey Mm -hmm. but I'd be curious but if it was at the same if first pitch for whatever team he's on coincides with the Cardinals I'm watching the Cardinals every time
1: Thanks, Freeze Pops. Thanks, guys. And we appreciate Tom Freeze Pops. Carol, doing great work with Wake Up or Snooze. Hey, don't forget that we have redesigned the Dunctionary T-shirt in honor of our late great friend Chris Duncan. And they're back for a limited time to support the Chris Duncan Memorial Scholarship Fund. Through May 22nd, you can order a limited edition Dunctionary T-shirt courtesy of our friends at MPG Tandem. Proceeds from all sales will be donated to that scholarship fund at the conclusion of the sale. So the Dunctionary, let me give you a, a, a word from the Dunctionary. Michelle, how about Boomski? Do you know what a Boomski is? A home run? Yes, it's a fair <laughs> hit that allows the batter to make a complete circuit of the bases without stopping and score a run. There you go. Boomski. Get your Dunctionary t-shirt at 101ESPN.com. As we roll on on character and Smallman, it's time for our fresh take of the day. It's coming your way on 101 ESPN. That was the Carriker and Smallman podcast on 101 ESPN.